to Luke chapter 17, if you haven't already, because you knew what was coming, because you read your email during the week, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, good girl. That's my girl. Luke chapter 17. There are 23 accounts of miracles in the book of Luke. 14 of those are healings. And it's, it's very easy, and not, it's not wrong either, to simply be encouraged by them and ask for the same today, right? You see the healings and go, well, I want more of that. <laughs> and we as a church, we believe that through the message of the rest of Scripture as a whole, and the countless stories we've got amongst us even, we could spend all morning sharing stories of what God has done for us in terms of miracles and healings, right? Um, because of that, those and how Scripture backs that up and, and encourages us, we realize and believe that that is for today as well. And so we get stirred by these accounts of healings and we ask for it, don't we? It's a good thing to do. But there is also a danger in missing uh, out on other wonderful truths if we just kind of skip over the surface of them. Oh, it's a healing, let's ask for healing. Good thing to do, that's not wrong. But there can be more to the picture, more layers, you peel away the onion, there's more to it we can discover. And today, again, is going to be another healing account where if we sift through the finer details of it, we can get our hands on even more gold, even more of the gospel shining through. So that's what we're going to do, Luke 17, and we're going to read from verses 11 to 19. Here we go. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee, and as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, he turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. And then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Wonderful. We're going to look at this uh, from three perspectives or three focal points, if you like. I've given them all, starting them with the letter S to help you. I'll be a good Baptist minister in that respect, won't I? Yeah, three S's. Uh, first one, the setting. We're going to look at the setting. The, the location, the context, the physical context helps us learn a lot about uh, what the message here is uh, God wants to share with us. Um, the setting, we're going to look at the sick the men themselves and their condition. We're going to look at that very briefly. And then we're going to spend more time at the end on the salvation, what actually happens at the end as well. So, first of all, the setting. What do I mean by that? Well, the thing is, you see, the, the journey itself that Jesus is making is, is vital. It's as vital to grasp as the particular incident itself. It's always helpful to understand what's going on around it. And it says in the very first verse we read, verse 11... On the way to Jerusalem, he, Jesus, was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. That tells us two things that help us realize the implications of this story and what God's doing here. Firstly, it says, on the way to Jerusalem. Jesus' ministry is now nearing its destination, the cross. And Jesus, so therefore, he's not only heading south, but he's aiming for his death this willing sacrifice that he's going to make in order to rescue humanity. 
We've already read, as we've been working our way through the book of Luke, we've already read in Luke chapter 9, it said that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. There's this concrete, unwavering determination that that is where I'm going to end up, and that's where I need to be. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. And then in Luke 13, not so long ago, Jesus said, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. And then Jesus is going to proclaim even more explicitly in the very next chapter. We're going to come to that part at the end of November. Jesus is going to say that ancient prophecies will be fulfilled and he will be killed. Jesus knows what he came here for and he's determined to see it through. In in 2009, a commercial Airbus in North America went radio silent for over an hour. They could not contact them. They weren't listening, weren't replying. Went radio silent for over an hour and overshot their destination by 150 miles. So, of course, back at base in the control tower, they are panicking. And um, US Air Force fighter jets were put on high alert at the time because they worried that something nefarious was up. Is this a hijacking? We need to take it down before it causes chaos. Why did they go, <laughs> why did they go radio silent for an hour and overshoot their destination by 150 miles? was because the two pilots got so caught up in and distracted by a heated conversation about airline policy. True. There was a lot of union stuff going on at the time, and they're having this big conversation. They got so caught up in it, they weren't listening to the radio, and they weren't looking where they were going. They got so focused on the mechanics of the job that they forgot about the point of the job, to get the plane and the passengers safely to their destination. And Jesus... He could have got caught up in all the acts of kindness and the parties and performing miracles and the opportunities for friendships and building up a following and the teaching and so on. But as important as those things are, they are not the reason God became man. God became man in order to die for us that we might live. And Jesus' laser targeting remained completely explicitly on that. I mean, there can be a tendency for us sometimes to get so caught up in Jesus' ministry more than his mission. Treating his life as a guidebook, for, a guidebook to life and a uh, you know, wonderful example to follow and so on. While there's value in that, it completely misses the point of the gospel. A holy God who, who stepped down and gave of himself completely in order to bring humanity home. And that then reframes how we look and how we listen to all the wonderful things he's said and done, including healing ten men with leprosy. So hold that thought. But also, it does say, on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. He's in neither one or the other. He's between Samaria and Galilee. He's in what, what would be called a liminal space. A liminal space is a place of journeying, a place of passing. It's not... It's not, it's not your um, starting point, it's not your destination, it's the bit in between. So, for example, a liminal space will be a waiting room. You don't go there and sit there for the sake of sitting in a waiting room. The waiting room is a place of journeying before you get to see the doctor or the dentist or, or wherever it is. A waiting room is a place of passing, right? A, a corridor is a, is a liminal space, it's a place of journeying. Your hallway in your house, it serves no other purpose other than to get you from one room to another. It's a place of journeying. You're not where you started from while you're in there, but you're not where you're headed either. And so 
Jesus is in this liminal space, this place of journey between Samaria and Galilee. Now, together, they, they were once simply, they were, um, they were together as the northern part of the promised land. But over time, they've become distinct regions. Samaria is what we would now call central Palestine. It's in the middle of Israel. Central Palestine is this highland area, and it falls in between Galilee in the north and Judea in the south, where Jerusalem is. So Jesus is coming from Galilee towards Jerusalem, towards the cross, and he's heading towards Samaria to pass through Samaria, and he's in this place in between. So what happened, this, 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 this is the point about, because it talks about this um, one individual later on, this Samaritan, the Samarian man. When the kingdom divided after King Solomon died, it all went horribly awry. You can read through uh, the book of Kings and so on. The central highland, it became prey to foreign influences. And they and the people of the southern region, Judea, they disagreed on where the center of worship should be. Uh, in Samaria in the middle, they came up with their own version of Moses' holy writings, what we call the first five books of the Bible. They came up with their own version of that. They adopted pagan religions and they intermarried with other nations around them and so became a mixed-race people, stuff they were forbidden from doing, and they became a mixed-race people. And so as a result, there's this tension between Samaria in the middle and the other parts of the original Israel, Galilee in the north, Judea in the south. This tension between those two and Samaria grew and grew and grew, and that's why there's such a shock factor to the famous parable of the Good Samaritan. He's the man involved who turns out to be the one who will stop and look after the victim He's a Samaritan. He's a man of Samaria. So that the, the expected um, response from Jesus' audience at the time would be, wait, one of them is the good guy. That's, that's the shock factor of that story. It's like a Samaritan. He's the hero. He's having a laugh. So Jesus is walking between these places on his way to the cross. He's, he's effectively in a no man's land, if you like. But that's the point. Jesus came to seek, the sa- uh, to seek and to save the lost whether they are near, so to speak, they're pure Jewish blood, God's honouring people through their bloodline, sticking to their own, honouring him that way, whether they're near, whether they're far, whether they're non-Jewish or mixed race or foreigners. Even Jesus calls this guy, this guy's a foreigner. Whether you're near or far, whether you're supposedly clean or unclean, we'll look at that in a minute, all of us are in dire need of divine rescue And Jesus was single-mindedly determined that he should take a journey through no man's land, between heaven and earth, so that no man should be without the offer of rescue. It's for everyone. Isn't that wonderful? Now, into that context, Jesus meets these ten men. Now, they're described as lepers. They have leprosy. Just a reminder, I know we've all heard of it, but leprosy is a, uh, a bacterial infection of the skin that that it's left, if it's left untreated, as we're able to do now, it damages the nerves, causes numbness, and that leads to ulcers, it leads to unnoticed injuries. You don't realise you've hurt yourself, perhaps severely, and that festers and gets, gets, in, it gets infected and so on. That, all that can lead to unfixable disabilities, you know, the ability, inability to walk or blindness and so on. That's what it does. And it is contagious, but through prolonged um, contact over protracted periods of time, we're talking years, in fact, not through shaking hands or hugging, as was feared back in the, back in the day. You, you can hug someone with leprosy and you won't catch leprosy. It doesn't work like that. But in that ancient world, people with leprosy would be outcasts. They'd be kept separate from society and they'd be kept at a distance. They'd have to be at a distance of six feet, two metres. Sound familiar? <laughs> they have to be two metres away at all times. 
But even more so, when the wind was blowing, they had to be 150 feet away. But they also had to cry out to people to warn. Keep back, I've got leprosy. They were, they were obliged to protect other people from themselves by crying out if someone came near. Now, even up to the first half of last century, the mid-1900s, um, mid uh, um, lepers, so to speak, would be placed in colonies um, for more humane treatment, like a village in the middle of nowhere for, for lepers to live in, a, a leprosy colony. But they're still separate from society. And today... Um, leprosy is rare and it's very treatable. It's not even called leprosy anymore. It's called Hansen's disease. They came up with a cure, found a cure in 1982. Now, there are a few remaining colonies that exist. There's, there's a famous one in Hawaii, but there's a few more. They still exist only because over the decades in last century, they became people's homes. And there's a few people still living there because that's their home. As, as, the, as the last of them die out, the colonies would die out. It's just not a thing anymore. But in ancient times... These people were simply cast out and treated inhumanely, actually. But there's not just a physical aspect behind it all as well, because in ceremonial law, and you can see it in the Old Testament, there was provision for leprosy in as much as it also de depicted sin's debilitating influence on a person. It's, it's a representation of that. In Leviticus, there is medical advice for skin, de skin diseases, Profound stuff back then that people nowadays scratch their head and go, how did they know? God told them. But there's also, within that, there's the recognition that these people are considered spiritually unclean as a representation of sin and the need for divine cleansing. And so we've got these ten men who are physically and contagiously sick, but also depicting sin's corruption on a person. They're outside the village, they're removed from society. They're in no man's land within no man's land, effectively, aren't they? They're separated by their creeping condition. And again, there's the gospel straight away. This insidiousness of sin, this sickness in all of us that manifests on the outside as hate and jealousy and cheating and so on. Things we are all, um, we're all capable of. The things we do are the symptoms, not the sickness itself. Even if you think you're an okay person who doesn't do much of that, you've still got the sickness, you still give in to it at times, don't we? We all do. And you're still, as a result, without Christ's sacrifice cleaning you, you're still, as a result, separated from a perfect God by your uncleanness. That's how it works. So on our own, we are unable to approach him. We're banished, we're separate, and we have to stay away. We can't even physically make that move. And we're unable to cure ourselves. That's the state of humanity. And so for a cosmic sickness, we need a divine healer. And it's into this narrative that Jesus performs this wonderful miracle. Because what happens is when we come to the third part, salvation. Because they remain at a distance, don't they? And they do cry out, don't they? As they should. But significantly, they don't call out as a warning. Rather, they call out as a cry for mercy. Verse 13, they lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. They know his name. They see it. They've worked out who he is straight away from a distance. Go, that's that Jesus. We've heard all about him. He's now famous. His name has been traveling way ahead of him as we've already seen. They've heard about him. They've heard about the miracles. They've heard about the acts of kindness. They've heard about the, the stripping down of the, the hypocritical 
religious elite that Jesus has been doing with the Pharisees. They've heard all about that. Those ones who think they're clean and sorted, but have totally missed the memo, haven't they? But here we have ten men who are humbled by their condition, who see him not like the Pharisees do, but they see him as their rescuer. Well, they don't just call him Jesus, do they? They call him Master. Now Luke, as a writer, he uses this word in situations where uh, when he does, it's, it's often where the other gospel writers writing similar stories, they're using the word teacher or rabbi. Luke prefers the word master. He, t- he tends to turn to that one a lot. It's a title of authority. It's a title of respect. It's a title of submission from the speaker. Um, so it's saying, you have, you have the authority, and I'm going to submit to your spiritual wisdom and to your guidance. I'm trusting you here to have the answer. They're appealing to his authority and to his wisdom for mercy. And so what does Jesus do? Jesus, once again proving that formula is not the key to healing, but he is. He's the key every time. This time he does it differently. He simply does it from a distance. He's not afraid to touch a leper. In Luke chapter 5, he's touched a leper. He's not afraid to do it. But this time, to keep things different, keep us on our toes, he does it from a distance. And he tells them to go and show yourselves to the priests. Now I love that because there's testimony in there. Jesus is going, go and tell the world. There's a testimony element to this. That a testimony that is valid to the community. Imagine the effects of those priests who are highly influential. They're, they're people with clout in the community. Imagine them seeing what's just happened. These known lepers from outside their village have now come completely healed. They're going to start whispering what Jesus has done. There's the ripple effect of like, this Jesus, here he goes again. Now, there's a value in just speaking out loud of what Jesus has done for you. Show and tell. When Jesus has made you whole, show and tell. But I'm asking myself, when was the last time you got to tell someone about what Jesus has done for you? We need to show and tell, don't we? And if you can't remember, it's not a guilt trip thing, but just if you can't remember, it may not have been because you haven't had the chance to. We just didn't notice the moment. Let's ask for his eyes to see those moments and his words to be able to share our story, right? Let's go, let's go and tell the world. If Jesus has made you whole, let's tell people. But it also says, as they went, they were cleansed. You see, that their obedience sees them step into their transformation. Not in order to earn it. Jesus has given it but in order to step into it. Jesus does the healing. Without, without him, being cleansed is impossible anyway. It wouldn't have happened. He's the key. But there is a rightful requirement on us to be obedient according to our master's command. And as we go, we are transformed. My friend Phil Whittle, some of you will know him as well. Um, he, he leads our church plant out in Sweden. He says... He said it this week. Transformation happens when truth puts its boots on and takes a walk through your life. Let me say that again. Transformation happens when truth puts its boots on and takes a walk through your life. Otherwise, the truth just stays up here as head knowledge. You're not living it out. As you live it out, it gets into your bones, gets into your spirit and grows. It's practical. It's not passive, but it's active. Time and time again, we just need to ask, am I being obedient? Am I being obedient? Am I doing what he wants? What he asks of me? 
If you, who wants more boldness? Who wants more courage? Who wants more peace? Who wants more patience? Etc. Etc. Ask for it. Rightly, ask for it. But it's about working these things out and seeing them realised as we go. Living it out brings the transformation. It works, as, works itself out into our spirits. Does that make sense? But here's the gut punch. Only one of these ten returns to specifically, explicitly pour out his gratitude and praise and worship. One in ten. Bit of a sucker punch, isn't it? The other nine are healed, but they don't take a moment to actually fully appreciate what's just happened. They take it for granted. Like entitled brats, they're reveling in the gift and not the giver, right? And in the same way, we humans can have the tendency to act like that every day. We can just take things for granted and we can fail to turn it into true worship to the one who's given it. Isn't that right? I can see it in my life. You know I love my films, don't you? You've probably noticed. But hand-drawn, animated films take a lot of work, don't they? Huge amount of work, ridiculous amount. Even today, studios are still doing hand-drawn feature-length films. Studio Ghibli out in Japan make amazing films. Cartoon Saloon in Ireland make amazing animated films. Check them out, they're fantastic. I'll give you a list later. Um, but those are immense operations, albeit with more modern techniques to help them, but they're still hand-drawn and they put a lot of work. They take years to make. But here's a pop quiz. What was the first feature-length animated film? Oh, Jenny, oh, stand straight up. Shout it out together. Snow White, Snow White, 1937, first one. Now, initially, that cost $250,000, but during the making of it, it ballooned to $1.5 million. It's 1937, it's crazy money. Walt Disney had to mortgage his own home to make sure they had enough money to get it finished. But over three years, they used 750 different artists drawing over 2 million sketches and 250,000 drawings were used in what we now see on the screen. Bonkers. Crazy numbers. And we take all that for granted, don't we, when we're watching it? We're not thinking about that, are we? We're, think we're just enjoying the music and the colours and the, the comedy and the, and the romance, etc., etc. We fail to appreciate all that's been going on behind the scenes for that to appear on the screen for us to enjoy, right? Always good reason to sit through the credits. People think it's boring and get up and leave. Look at those names. Appreciate what those names have done. It's incredible. But it's the same with life in general, isn't it? We just, we just fail to realise quite what's going on behind the scenes and quite how privileged we are because of what God is, has done and is doing for us. We just don't fully realise. John Piper, I know I've been mentioning this quite recently but, um, in other, other settings, but John Piper, American pastor, he says, God is always doing 10,000 things in your life and you may be aware of three of them. True, true. And here, we've got nine lepers who have had an overt, out loud miracle occur. Life-changing. And they still can't give him the glory. There is, there is something in us that is self-absorbed and we have to fight against its effects. All of, all of humanity is on the receiving end of God's general grace. The, the theology, the doctrine is called common grace. All of humanity is on the receiving end of God's general grace. It's because of his grace that we can all, that we all woke up this morning, for starters. 
right? Across the planet, and as the, as the morning creeps into other time zones from now onwards, people wake up because he let them wake up. Our days are in his hands, right? How often do I give thanks for that? Thank you for letting me wake up this morning. How often do I do that? I don't always. It's because, and this is for every human being, not just Christians, you know. It's because of his grace that we can all experience moments of joy and wonder and kindness in a fallen world. As, as a race, we continue to discover new wonders in creation, don't we? And people are still able to fall in love and we're able to be selfless for the sake of others, regardless of who we are. Whatever our circumstances, we can also all know what it is to be on the receiving end of that kindness as well. And it's possible because of our maker's merciful intervention is enabling that we haven't literally torn each other apart completely already, even though sometimes it feels like it. It's because of his grace that we can be kind and merciful to others. Because the world seems to think we're inherently good, but sometimes we do bad things, right? That doesn't make sense when you think about it. If we're inherently good, how on earth are we able to, and why do, well, would we do bad things if we're inherently good? Where's that, where, where's that come from? That needs unpacking. <laughs> it trips itself up. But the Bible says we are inherently sick, but by God's good grace, his common grace, his involvement, we are able to do good. That's the difference. It's the other way around. God's common grace is like a handbrake on, our, on humanity's sin, if you like. Sam Storms is an American pastor. He describes it as exactly that. It's like a handbrake on a car that's parked on a steep hill. The, the car's weight and gravity as a combination, without a handbrake, it would naturally, it would naturally result in its rolling down the hill and crashing, Right? It needs a handbrake to stop it doing that. The handbrake resists this otherwise natural outcome. And so too is human sin. Just humanity at large, our natural inclination is a downward descent because of the sickness, because of sin. But Holy Spirit is like a handbrake on human hearts, stopping us from completely destroying ourselves and everything. The ability to do good, the ability to resist evil, and to be on the receiving end of goodness regardless of your character and so on. That's Holy Spirit's handbrake on sin not having its full effect. That's God's good common work, his common grace amongst humanity at large. But then he also does a further particular miraculous saving work for those who submit to Christ fully as Lord. That's his saving grace. And all of these men... You see this now, all of these ten men were on the receiving end of God's common grace to be physically healed. The effects of sin in their lives, he still dealt with the effects of. Nine of them took that for granted and aren't seen again. But this one guy, his radically different heart posture brings freedom and transformation at a far deeper level than just his body. You see this? Ten receive common grace, only one of them receives saving grace. Because Jesus says to him, as he comes back, he goes right at the very end, verse 19, your faith has made you well. That word well is the word sozo. I know some of you know that word. The word sozo, it means about being made whole in every way. He's been saved completely and utterly at every level. Your faith has saved you. His nine friends, they've been on the receiving end of God's common grace. 
Good things happen to, to, to people regardless of their character or their standing before God. But this man, because he honours Christ for who he is and what he has done, he is made whole in every way, not just physically. So as I just come to an end, we've just got to ask ourselves, are we in danger of taking God's mercy for granted in the first place? We might say thank you on a Sunday, but does it seep into our everyday lives? Always a good question to ask. But also, am I practicing coming close to Jesus in worship like this man did? He turned back and came close to Jesus, when before he couldn't even come close. He came close to Jesus in worship because there we find completeness and there we find being made fully well. Because then the more we come to him, the more we realize his common grace over us and his saving grace over those of us who have submitted ourselves to him. And then the harder it is to stay away. Final quote of the morning, John Owen, who's a Puritan preacher from the 1600s, his prayer is, may we who once ran from you in fear not be able to keep at a distance even for a moment. So here we have a man who was once distanced by his incurable sickness, who turned back to come close to Jesus in adoration, and he found his salvation. May that be our story too. Let me just pray John Owen's prayer again before I hand over to Pete. May we, who once ran from you in fear, not be able to keep at a distance even for a moment. Let's come before him. Thanks, mate.